Space Radio. Roger, restart. Now I'm looking out of It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. This is Rick Tomlinson. Welcome back to The Space Revolution here on iRock Space Radio. As you know, we're part of the iHeartRadio network and thrilled to be so. So um, our guest today is an amazing lady named Lee Steinke. And Lee is one of these people who maybe hasn't necessarily been a part of what I would call the space revolution, you know, um, for over the last years. One of those kind of people who shows up as this kind of uh, transformation begins to get, as some people might say, serious. The kind of person who is drawn into the challenges that we're facing and uh, brings with her a lot of knowledge. Um, Lee's background is is pretty serious and, and, and pretty deep. She's got an MBA from Wharton. We know about those Wharton people. Uh, <laughs> master's degree from Yale um, and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, very impressive stuff. Um, I've known Lee a little while, uh, about a year or so now, I guess, and um, been very impressed by her, her credentials, and her ability to do what I would call dance with the, uh, oh, and dance. I've seen her dance as well. She does that well. But I mean, as far as dancing with what it is we are all about and the people she interacts with, and it's, it's very impressive. She is also um, this chief operating officer of Cislunar Industries. And um, so what we're going to do, Lee, is we're going to start with that part, right? Uh, if you can tell me a little bit about Cislunar Industries, um, what the goal of the company is, you know, what your plans are, where you are now with it. So, and by the way, welcome. Thank you so much, Rick. It's great to be on the show. And hi, everybody. Glad to be here. Cislunar Industries is a company that's developing metal processing capabilities for in-space applications. So we sort of forge a critical missing link in the value chain of uh, metal in space. So there's already a lot of metal up there that can be processed into useful materials to build large structures, uh, to generate thrust in uh, metal propellant thrusters, um, and you know, create opportunities for growth of infrastructure throughout space. And where, where is this lunar located? We are in Colorado. So we have a, a garage lab in Fort Collins and we've got uh, an office in Orbit Fab's building. So we are one of the Tycho station, uh, you know, Tychonauts in uh, the building that Orbit Fab hosts. Yeah, and Tor Orbit Fab, again, for those of you who have been listening before, is uh, Dan Faber, um, gas stations and space guy. And what he did was put together a facility for lots of companies uh, to kind of come together and, and work under one roof, which is, which is a great model. Um, so when you, when you say that you're focusing on the processing, so that's not prospecting, that's not harvesting, that's, right. is it, you know, you're later in the chain. Yeah, so we don't do we don't do sourcing, we don't do transportation, logistics, and we don't do real estate. We're focused on our modular space foundry technology and the various subsystems that go with that. But we'll take 
uh, metal on space stations, waste metal on space stations from experiments that do not need to be downmassed. We'll take space debris cut up by uh, our partners and transported by our partners. We'll take lunar regolith on site, um, either pre-processed or unprocessed, um, and provide then the raw materials like sheet metal, uh, rods, tubes, wire for 3D printing. Um, so we're, we're looking to be kind of the Carnegie's of the space world. <laughs> so how, how far along are you guys right now? Um, yeah, so um, we've been a U.S. company since 2019, and uh, we've been milestoning away uh, for the past couple of years. Um, we've raised um, almost $2 million in both dilutive and non-dilutive funding, and we've had two NASA contracts, uh, the second of which included a mission on a parabolic flight. So we've advanced some of our technology to TRL-6. Um, and I'm not sure uh, how, how space savvy your audience is, but that's a measure of how ready our technology is for space. Uh, so that's an exciting milestone for us. Um, we just got some additional good news I can't share yet today, but if you go to our website, maybe in a, in a month or so, you'll see some new good news. Um, and one of the things that I really like about Cislunar is that we've, um, we've thought about how to apply our technologies uh, to different arenas. And we stick with that core competency of, of the foundry and its various subsystems. But those subsystems have applications in both terrestrial and in-space applications that have sooner markets than the one, uh, you know, than, than full cycle metal processing in space. So we have that, that runway. We have a way to survive the runway and really get what we want to do done. Oh, that's great. So a couple of quick things I want to, yeah. because there's a lot what you just said. So for those of you who don't know what TRL is, that's technical readiness level. And that was invented by our friend, John Mankins. Um, it's a skill. Well, Dr. Mankins. Dr. John Mankins too. Remember, <laughs> uh, I call him John, but anyway, um, we call each other other names, but we won't go there. And so the TRL basically breaks down into three Areas one is one through three roughly means that it's theoretical. It's being talked about. You're on the edge of doing something about it. Um, three through six means you're lab testing it. You're working on it, etc. And then six through nine means you're starting to apply it, fly it on space flights. Um, and actually, when you start, when you hit nine, next step is you're going with it. You're going into into the market with it. So that's just an explanation there. Um, so you guys, um, you're getting started. Now, you're talking about two different things here, and I want to get clear, clarified with you on that, and that is the processing of metals in zero-G, micro-G as we call it, uh, free space itself. Um, and then you were talking about lunar. Are you talking about doing it within the gravity of the moon? Because those are two very different kinds of things, you know, and one of them, for the for the listeners and and one of them you've got the stuff is just floating all over the place and you got little bits of metal or whatever you're trying to get it to go to a certain place and have certain things done to it and then have it come out the other end and all of that or um, on the moon at least you have a little bit of gravity that kind of makes it behave let's say a little yeah. bit better um are you guys working on both or just just one 
Yeah, both. So uh, terrestrial, as you as you say, terrestrial foundry operations rely heavily on gravity. Everything is pouring of molten metal. And so for our in-space or in-orbit um, applications, we are, one of our expertises is in um, electromagnetics and electronics. And we have some real differentiation there in our team. And so we are developing the ability to manipulate the motion of molten metal using uh, magnetic coils that um, we can reverse or, or uh, the polarity on and manipulate where the molten metal moves. And we can make it rotate and spin into a ball, which we think we can then advance um, using, using that technology. So it's... Um, an exciting part of what we're doing. That's one of the things that we tested on our, our parabolic flight that I mentioned. Um, and so that's really important for anything that happens on orbit until we have rotating space stations. And then we'll go back maybe to the normal way. Um, now, on the moon, we do plan to uh, utilize the gravity there, um, but that is le- that hasn't been the focus of any of our um, our current projects. So that's our our longer term development plan. But it's kind of uh, a reining in. It's an easier task uh, in some ways than what we're trying to do in LEO. Got it. Well, I think that, um, I mean, I'm fascinated by the topic. And part of the reason is, um, you know, as you know, some of the listeners know, I was focused on asteroid mining for a while. Yeah, yeah. But even previous to that, when I was running the Fines Endowment, we gave Dr. John Lewis, who's the, the god of asteroid knowledge, um, half a million dollars to focus on the processing of ferrous metals yep. in a microgravity environment. And so it's uh, it's an area that I'm a little bit familiar with, played around with a little bit. Um, but I love that, you know, that you guys are pushing forward in it in such a, a, a strong way. Um it occurs to me, by the way, I mean, if you're talking about being able to manipulate something into a sphere in microgravity, then then we're talking about ball bearings. Yes. Um, and anybody who's followed the space field or read some of the books um, about space and um, um, the, the talk about industrial, the third industrial, the, you know, the industrial revolution and um, high frontier, things like that. Um, the idea there is that Perfect ball bearings are like a big deal. And if you can create perfect spheres in space. And, you know, Lee, something just popped into my head. Um, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Um, the, um, the thing that just popped into my head is, you know, watching the... Um, <clears throat> I was watching the 60 Minutes thing on the fusion breakthrough that we yes. just had. And it reminded me of, of the idea of the fact that when they're doing the fusion, part of the thing is that they have to have a perfectly spherical ball that they aim at. I, you're probably already thinking about it. I would say go there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. We we have um, you know there's some other operators in this space. And we've kind of differentiated ourselves as the um, 
gritty, we'll take anything, we'll turn it into something real um, kind of thing where where some of our competitors are more on the boutique. We're going to make one fancy thing that's really expensive and sell it to the government and on earth and we're going to use it on earth. Um, but when it comes to the expertise that we have um, in, in manipulating met, molten metal, that could be a place where we actually um, would want to compete in that market of a boutique product. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's so small, I, 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 the the funny part on the uh, sixty minutes thing, you know, is the the sphere is so small that then when they glue it to the little thing that all the lasers are shooting at, you know, to create the fusion, they use a human hair to put the drop of glue on. That's how tiny we're talking, right? So, um, and we like small right now, you know, until we have a starship or something. Small is good. So something you to think about. It, it sounds like you guys are on to something. Um, projecting forward, what, what do you think are the next big milestones? You were talking milestones for Cisluna. Yeah. So um, like I talked about initially, the, the use, the application of some of our subsystems um, to rest release. So we're looking at um, in-mine applications for processing metal so if if mines terrestrially can process metal ore into ingots within the mine you know remotely so that there aren't a lot of people that you don't need a lot of extra space um, and just take the ingots out with whatever minimal uh, material needs to come out to make the space for the robotics and, and the technology to go in you can save probably 95% of your mine decommissioning costs. Um, there is the same, if we can accomplish that, then we have the same applications in uh, decommissioning of nuclear technology, whether submarines uh, or uh, nuclear power plants. Um, those are very expensive to decommission and often require transportation over long distances and national borders in order to uh, clean those up and get them get them taken care of. But if we can go in without human inf- intervention and uh, melt down the rods, the casings, um, that's another application. So we're looking at those. We also have our uh, expertise in electromagnetics and electronics, and we're looking at current markets for uh, power propulsion units, uh, switches, and capacitors um, that we believe we've got some differentiation on from what's out in the market today. Wow. And I love the fact, again, you know, I'm wearing, you can't see it on the on the um podcast, but I'm wearing my Space Fund Evil Venture Capitalist hat as we're <laughs> speaking. And, you know, that's what we always like to hear is near-term markets on the earth that allow you to then leverage yourself um, out um, under the frontier. Um, sounds very fascinating. And uh, we're going to wrap up this session with that. We're going to come back and start talking about some, some other things um, in um, just a few moments. So, gang, you're listening to IROC Space Radio here on the iHeartRadio Network. My name is Rick Tumlinson, and our guest is Lee Stanky from Cislunar Industries. All right. Welcome back, spacers. This is the Space Revolution. I'm your host, Rick Tumlinson. We have a, an amazing guest today, Lee Stanky with Cislunar Industries. Um, now, one of the interesting things about you, Lee, is you've kind of rolled in, as I was saying at the beginning, you kind of rolled into this field, well, sort of like a 
tornado rolls across Kansas. But I mean, you're you're coming in here. All of a sudden, everywhere I'm going, there's Lee. Lee's doing this, and Lee's part of that. We're, we're bringing Lee in here, etc. And um, what I like you about get rid of yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I've, I've had the same problem, but you're much more fun than I am. And the thing is that you're bringing a level of expertise. Um, you came from um, the the oil industry or the the oil and gas industry, I gather. Um, as you're rolling into the space field, and I, now knowing that this is newer and that's a 150-year-old industry, other than that, what, what do you see in terms of similarities and differences that, that, that have just jumped out at you? Yeah. So part of the reason that I picked the space industry was that it was one of the only other places other than oil and gas, which I think is on the decline, uh, macro decline, even with these little blips that we have of excitement, um, is that you get in the same company, you get to do both the R&D and the execution. A lot of industries aren't like that. They do R&D, you know, in some other division far away. They do, um, you know, universities or or national labs are doing, you know, renewable energy labs are inventing new things. And then the companies adopt them or license them and do do the field work to execute on them. Uh, I really like both sides of that coin. And I wanted to be upstream and downstream at the same time um, on, on that kind of thing. And so space really attracted me for that reason, because it's technical uh, and because it's geopolitical. I think um, you can do things. There's a, there's a, an opportunity to influence global matters in a positive way in both industries. I mean, if, if, oil and gas had built more natural gas export facilities uh, in, you know, the 2010s, um, you know, into the, into the 15s, we would have not, Russia wouldn't have been in a position that it was in. So, you know, I, I think there's opportunity to get ahead of things using space. And I want to be part of that as well. Mm. Any, um, anything that's like dramatically different that you've run into? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, with the exception of the obvious primes, I think the biggest difference is that oil and gas people have deployed capital and taken action over and over and over and over and over and over again. And they learn from that. They get feedback. What did I do badly? What did I do well? Some careers in space, you only get one or two missions, right? They're long wait times, long missions. You get less instantaneous feedback. You get less, you know, fewer slaps in the face um, of your mistakes, especially with the standards of NASA missions being so high and the low likelihood of failure on those. You not getting that benefit of having failed and learned from it over and over again. So it's, um, I see a, when I first came in, I encountered what I thought was sort of more idealism uh, in the space industry, which is nice <laughs> in a way, um, but it's also an opportunity to help share what I've learned about how when you do big things, many times you, you get some experience um in resiliency that I'd like to see 
the space industry benefit from? Yeah, that's sort of, um, you know, I made up a word a long time ago called new space, and it's kind of that, right? It's the difference, you know, um, quickly, move along, learn, you know, blow things up, break things, fix them, and do it again, and hopefully blow them up less often. (laughs) Um, And um, safely, of course, safely. Yeah. yeah, I I think that's I think you're you're right. I mean, it, it it is so sad sometimes when you look at the time between you know ideation and execution um, that some people's entire career is wrapped up around one mission. Um, now that's understandable if you're like your mission happens to be you know like Galileo or something um, you know sitting up yeah new horizons and yeah going way out there it's going to take years until we get the whole light speed of light thing going but a lot of times in our field that's that's because of the legacy that's because of the bureaucracy that's because of having to deal with congressional funding and new st- on and on and on it, it, it's a bit maddening and um yeah you know we're working on it a lot of people are working to change that, and and I'm glad to have you aboard to help us change that with your lessons. Um, what um, what drew you in towards again? You kind of touched on it, but what what drew you in towards space again? What what was there like a moment where you said, you know, I'm done with these holes in the ground. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going up. Yeah. So. Um... I really enjoyed the images from 67P. That's a a European Space Agency mission to a comet. And I don't know, what, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. um, I had not at that point joined Twitter, but I joined Twitter just so I would be quick to see those photos that were coming in. And it was such a magical place. I've always enjoyed the stars. I considered doing um, plate tectonics on Venus for my master's degree, Um, elected not to. And thank goodness, because now they've shown that Venus doesn't have formal plate tectonics. So I'm glad I didn't build a career off of that. But, um, you know, lots of little things. But those images from 67P were really exciting to me. and magical. And so when I got to a position where I could really jump into something new and fresh, um, space came to the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And, and so how did you execute that? And how did you make mm-hmm. that change? Like from, you know, gas industry? Yeah. What did you do? Just like call up somebody, hey, I want to do some space or what, what did you do? I I kind of did. Yeah. So I have a friend named Kate Palmer. She's a banker. And uh, so I was having coffee with her in the, you know, just as we were exiting from lockdown, we went outdoors to a coffee shop and um, caught up a little bit. And I told her, hey, you know what? I think I'm interested in in space. What do you got for me? Who do you know? I didn't know a soul, like zero, nobody. And uh, she was like, oh, I know this lady. I'll introduce you. So she introduced me to none other than Shelley Brunswick. Who knows? Oh, okay. Everybody, right? So I started following Shelley to her virtual speaking uh, 
uh, engagements. And I would make a friend in the chat of each of these speaking engagements. And that's how I met Joe Rice at Lockheed Martin. That's how I met um, Tim Chrisman at Foundation for the Future. Um, I just sort of met everybody that way. And then I started volunteering for both Space Foundation, where Shelly is, and for Foundation for the Future, where Tim Chrisman is. And um, I've, I've I've always advised people not to take less than their worth, and you know all, all this. And here I am volunteering for free, um, but it was a wonderful thing to do. And eventually, both organizations hired me. And really, the the way that I broke in seriously was through the interviewing that I did on screen for Foundation for the Future, um, and then building networks for activities with Space Foundation. Um, you get to meet, you get to call whoever you want, and important people will take your calls, uh, even if they don't know who you are. They they want to talk. They're interested in spreading whatever message they have. Uh, and so I had very good response, um, people just willing to, to talk and be interviewed. And it was like an instant master's degree having to interview all these CEOs and, and generals and people who know what's going on in the industry. It was great. Yeah, it's funny because I kind of started a little bit the same way in a way. And that yeah. is that I came in doing media. Yeah. You know, and um, interviewing people and then helping people produce videos and stuff like that because I didn't know my way in. Yeah, I'm such yeah. a terrible student that unlike you, I did not have Wharton, Yale, <laughs> University of North Carolina. Um, and but you that, had an aircraft carrier, and that's pretty good. Well, we did. We had we had an aircraft carrier at one point for the New York City L five Society back in the day. Um, but you know, the difference I think one of the differences in our field over almost every there's probably one or two others out there, but. <laughs> It's not an ind- it's not just an industry, it's a cause. Mm-hmm. And so if you pay attention to people in the field, they're they're excited that you want to know. Right? And because then you can join the cause. And and I include the aerospace people. I give them a hard time, but they're lighter they're, yeah. they're we're all dreamers. We we're going at it different ways. Um but it's 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 a it's a validation. It's an inclusion exercise. It's sharing of enthusiasm. Um, it's like, come on, come on in. We need you. Come on, let's go. Um, and that's very different than most established industries in the world. You know, it's like I don't know if you're if you're working on um, you know feed products for livestock. That's not really a cause. Like, I guess maybe it is. There's some probably some ways, ways it is. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I don't insult anybody, you know, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I was very surprised how much a community it was and how quickly, you know, I went to my first space symposium about, what, six months after I started doing what I just described. And I walked across the campus at the Broadmoor. And it was like, oh, hi, I've interviewed you. Oh, hi, I know you. Hey, what's going on? And it was it was amazing how many people I knew in that place in such a short time. And I never was good at networking. I never I never was trained in how to interview people. I didn't know anything. And I just got out there and tried something. And it, it was great. So, you know, 
doing things that are out of your comfort zone is a big deal when you're transitioning industries and you just got to be ready to take whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little I'm, I'm a little crushed right now because, you know, when I walk across that same campus, they turn and walk away and, <laughs> as if they're suddenly or they pick up their phone and start talking, even though there's nobody on the, you know, I don't know. Hey, <laughs> you know, you're kind of a nice person. And, and then there's me. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, that, yeah, I agree with you totally. Um, so. You've gotten in the field now. You're doing this. Um, outside of um, Cislunar, are there projects you're working on that you're excited about? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I have gotten to work with Space Force through New Space New Mexico <laughs> on their long-term strategy. So I get to work on futures workshops. I'm part of a... Um, a group that meets regularly to envision possible futures. Uh, and then we've carried that exercise into a workshop that brought in industry perspectives on what commercial space will look like in the future, meaning what will Space Force have to defend in terms of lines of commerce in much the same way that the Navy defends lines of commerce on our seas. So it's it, that's been a wonderfully fascinating project for me. Again, I'm a, an entire new you know newcomer um but just get in there try to learn as quickly as i can um get to the heart of the matter um and enough vocabulary to be conversant and then just take it out and roll roll it out and get what i can for for our national security it's great no that's true it's really great um i think as you know i'm I'm also working on a different angle with with Space Force on the yeah, you're on the doctrine advisory group, right? Yeah, doctrine yeah. organization group. We're called the Dog. Dog. That's a good name for you, Rick. You want- <laughs> Doctor Colucci wanted to call it the Dog. I don't know why. We're working on the capstone stuff, but yeah, we're coming at it different yeah. ways. We're in the same same groups, same circles, um, and um, so you've, you're you're working with that. And um, I do see you around at different events and, and things like that. And so you're 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 rolling around in this field and and creating I, what I like about your approach to things is I think that you're you're pragmatist, mm-hmm. right? You're you're very much about you know don't don't blow it at me. Just let's let's figure out how this thing works, right? Is that how you look at it? Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. No, no, I, I think you are. And, and I, I get that feeling from you and the discussions we've had, too. But you're, you're a nice pragmatist, right? You're, <laughs> people like you and they like your advice about let's talk about these things seriously. And that's good. It's really. Yeah, it's it's an awkward transition. It's one of the things that I've thought about um, as I've made this career transition, because I do make an impression of being inspirational um, right away. And sometimes when you transition from inspirational to gravitational um, or practical or critical, even in some cases, um, that can be a difficult transition for people to absorb on the receiving end. Right. And so one of the reflections that I've had on myself in terms of how to accomplish the most I can do in this career is to is to make sure I'm conscious of that and and make those transitions mindfully um, and with my audience, you know, fully prepared <laughs> for that shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That's cool. Well, let's we're going to dive a little more into that and some other stuff here when we come back. So, Spacers, you are listening to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. Our guest is Lee Steinke from Cislunar Industries. And uh, we are part of the IROC, excuse me, the iHeart Radio Network. We are on the IROC Radio Channel. Um, we're going to be back in a couple of minutes. All right, Spacers, back to the show, The Space Revolution, with our guest, Lee Steinke. My name is Rick Tumlinson. And uh, thank you for listening. As you've been hearing, um, Lee is a very dynamic personality. Um, and uh, as we were just saying, a pragmatist. I like your comment right at the end there uh, of the last segment where you were saying, you because you can jar people, you know, people like to peg you into a, put you into a slot. Yeah. Um, I'm probably the textbook definition of someone who isn't in a slot. <laughs> and my friend Jeff Manber, um, who is part of Voyager uh, Space Systems, NanoRacks, he's a legend in the field um, from New York. And uh, forgive me for doing his voice, but he's like, Rick, Rick, you know, what are you? You're, you're a writer, you're a speaker, you're, you're, you're an entrepreneur. You're been, what are you going to be when you grow up? You're confusing me, you know? Um, and it's funny because at one and the same time, we need specialists in our field, right? But in my vision of someone who can deal with the frontier, whether it is the frontier of this industry as we begin to break out to the real frontier or once you're out there, the key, especially for those who are rising up to leadership positions or going to be integral in terms of the structure of what it is we're doing is a dynamism and an ability to adapt and do all kinds of things. It's the way your mind works, not the specific thing you're doing with your mind all the time. Robert Heinlein, great science fiction writer, um, in the book Time Enough for Love, there's a little section in the middle of it, I think, <laughs> And he talks about all the different skills someone who goes out into space should have. You know, you need to be able to change a diaper, um, you know, sew, sew a quilt, shoot a gun, da-da-da, da-da-da. You need to be do able to do all these things. You strike me as one of those kind of people. You know, you made the mistake of, like, telling me at one point that you had um, done professional ballet or... Um, Dance, professional dance, dance, yeah, yeah. Professional dance. Um, you've got these other skills. Um, there's probably three or four that I have no idea about. Um, but that's great. And the reason I'm highlighting that is because I, I want those listeners out there who maybe aren't locked in, like I am an engineer. This is all I do. Yeah. There may be people out there um, who are like you and I um, who... Are, have have different interests. They come from different fields. They come from different areas. But we want them. We yeah. want them to come in. You know. What What are your thoughts on that? I've, I've been going on. Yeah. You know. It's It's a great question, and and I've thought about it quite a bit. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a geophysicist as well, and so I do have a field that you know it falls within the astronaut category of geologists and and geophysicists can be astronauts. Um, 
But it's a, you know, it's not what I used really to initially get in the industry. Uh, I want to be a technical leader. Um, want to want to be um, driving projects. Very good at that sort of thing. Um, leading teams of people much more expert than I uh, in technical fields, but I can keep them aligned with business goals and, and drive things forward that way. Um, that being said. I have been fascinated by how valuable my generalist skills have become almost immediately in this industry. Um, you know, I think that our world is moving towards specialism um, and that so many are pigeonholed in smaller and smaller specialties, um, you know, whether it's at a university or at a company or uh, in the government. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities to get pigeonholed and specialized. And I would encourage people to, um, you know, get the depth that they need in their field of specialization. But don't forget to talk to people about other things and see those connections. Look for what is similar about your specialty to somebody else's because the opportunities for technology transfer. I talked to a group recently that was, um, they were doing a patent search to determine if there was any available technology for what they were trying to accomplish. And it was a space technology. And I asked, oh, well, how broad is your patent search? They said, oh, we're looking at all the space patents. And I said, really? Are you like, you don't think people have had to do this in mining, in oil and gas, in, you know, aerospace on the you know, aeronautics? You don't think people have had to do this in, you know, maybe even construction, large scale construction? Why would you limit your patent search to space where... You know, there's been so little investment. I mean, it feels big, but really there's been so little investment in space over the years. And, you know, there's opportunity. If you look across the aisle, if you sniff out what people are doing, even if it's at the bar, just, you know, you're you're out at, at church or you're at wherever you go, who knows, you're at the barn or with your horse, whatever you do, chat with people about what they're thinking about and you will find connections that are valuable and will move you forward. Yeah, I think that uh, your point's really important there and that there's this idea that NASA spins off, let's say our space program spins off yeah. all kinds of technologies. Well, it does, but it also spins in yes. technologies. And um, a lot of the, the I'll give you an example. It's on the pad a few hundred miles from here, um, Starship, Elon Musk, Starship, right? So this is, you know, don't pin me down if you're if you're a freaking engineer, okay? But I'm just gonna. It's a vague story. I just want to make a, a point here. Um, We're just chatting, Rick. There are no wrong answers, Ben. There are some wrong answers, <laughs> but seriously, like Elon's original designs that his team had come up with, um, the early vehicles, and you'll recall them. They were like white and black, and they looked like space shuttle-y kind of things. And that's yeah. because they had tiles on them. Yeah. And uh, all of these uh, standard things that you would need if you're coming in doing a belly flop through the atmosphere and you're dealing with a super, super dense, you know, sort of plasma and high high temperatures and things like that. Yeah. Um, and one of the challenges that they found was that um, 
in between flights, because the, there's so much temperature changing that's going on, it wasn't had to do with the tiles, but the glue that would yes. hold the tiles in was a real problem, right? That's you're having to rebuild the sucker. Yeah. So what does he do? Well, he goes out and he looks around and he goes, you know what? I'm just going to make it out of steel. <laughs> Old fashioned steel, right? And yeah, it's a lot heavier, all that kind of stuff. But that's a technology that we've been working with for 500 years, 600 years easily. Yeah. Um, and so that's why the vehicle is silver now. Yeah. Right? And so that's a spin in. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. And and that's really interesting because one of the things I learned recently at a meeting in London is that some of the key suppliers of uh, thermal technology for spacecraft don't want to be in that business anymore. So apparently it's either low, too low margin or not profitable at all. Uh, there are only a couple of key providers and they don't want to do it anymore. And so finding those other ways to do it that are cheaper and better, uh, you know, maybe best for everybody. I, I think it's exciting when people use that. <laughs> you know, Cislunar Industries, when we think about processing material on the moon, um, we have to look back 100 years, 150 years, maybe longer, at how how people processed metal before there was um, the modern beneficiation, because modern beneficiation uses materials that aren't available on the moon and are too, you know, too volume, <laughs> too much volume and too heavy to, to take with us if we can possibly help it. So looking back at uh, those heavy industry activities before, you know, the final version that we use today uh, is going to be valuable in all kinds of ways. It's really smart. Yeah, it takes you way back. Beneficiation, by the way, is differentiating between different kinds of substances. This is actually where you're using gravity. Um, yes. Well, but, um, we have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, we have people that are focused in different areas and we're, you know, unlike you, they're not all smart in all the different areas like me, you know, I have to get some explanations on that. So anyway, look, I'm, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, this idea of the dealing with the metals and things like that. Um, Kind of go, swinging back around to that, to the um, cislunar industries angle. Um, one of the concerns I'm dealing with with my Earthlight, our nonprofit here, is we're going to be looking at supporting the work on uh, orbital debris. Yes. And that's on the top of a lot of people's minds inside and outside of the space field. Do you really think that that's, that's a, a place where cislunar could play? Like, you know, chewing up old space spacecraft and yeah yeah so our first uh our first in space uh revenue in 2025 will be on a space station where we take metals that would otherwise be downmast at high cost and process them into wire filament for 3d printing um but now let me hang on I'm gonna, i just want to give an explanation for that yes yeah okay, okay. so one of the interesting things about the space station is whenever um, one of the ships goes up and down, a lot of times they're just bringing trash down, garbage down from the space station. And that costs. So what you're talking about is like, I don't know, maybe they peel the foil off of their cheeseburger meal or something that day and they've got this piece of aluminum foil, right? It's yeah, it's mostly the, like the casings on the 
you know, the aluminum boxes that the experiments go up and down in. Okay. So, um, you know, they're there's a box to hold the spiders that are, you know, they're studying how the orb weavers make webs and without in microgravity. Right. And that box has an aluminum casing. It gets down masked now all the way safely to earth when in fact, really they just want the spiders and the glass box. Um, but they just put it all in one and, and send it down and it costs twice as much to send it down as to send it up. Yeah. Um, and so we, we have that opportunity to save money for, for our clients through that kind of process. But I wanted to throw that out there. But our main use case originally, as the company was being formed, was to recycle space debris. And so we have a variety of partners in that value stream. We you know, partner with companies who are capturing space debris. Uh, you talked about uh, Nanorex cutting space debris. That's uh, one, of the, one of the things that... Um, uh, we we've looked at with them. They're a partner on on one of our NASA grants, and um, so all these companies that want to handle space debris, we actually close the business loop for them, because otherwise it's just regulatory drivers, right? The government has to pay to clean up a Superfund mm-hmm. site, right? But if we can take those materials and turn them into propellant and into construction materials, then it changes the game because then you can have a customer on the downstream side who actually buy products that are useful in space. I love it. Um, my problem when I talk to folks like you is my, um, it just like 10 things go off in my head while you're talking, um, you know, and we'll have to talk offline about uh, the uh, up orbiting of debris, future junkyards yeah. in space. Yeah. Rights of salvage. Yeah, we just we just initiated our salvage service concept, and uh, yeah, it's there's demand now that 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 five year rule is in place where people have after their satellite uh, retires, it can't float around for more than five years anymore, at least if it's a U.S. asset. And so there will be customers who need a place to house their asset if they don't want to completely just uh, you know have it disintegrate in the atmosphere if they want to preserve it for possible later use, repurpose it, um, then we may have a place where they can store it. Right. We're going to have to deal with a lot of, um, I was talking to my friend, Aaron Osterley from the Space Frontier Foundation and um, yeah. his policy wonk. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with a lot there because like, because they're thinking old school about bringing things down, they actually put words like that in the language. We have to get rid of those words so you're not mandated to deorbit; it just needs to be reutilized, you know, or yes. uporbited or taken out of, you know, you know. We just we just don't want it hitting, um, you know, Clooney or or you know Sandra Bullock. You know, that's that's the that's the key thing. We got to protect protect them. Um, so we're going to come back in a minute. We're going to talk about a couple, couple new, a few more things here in our last section. But um, this is fascinating. I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, spacers, that's my spacers voice. Spacers, um, you are listening to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson, and we're on IROC Space Radio. We're part of the iHeart Radio Network. We're with Lee Steinke. All right, my spacer or space cadet friends, we are. On Back with the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. This is a I Rock Space Radio. 
Um, you may be listening to this as a podcast, by the way, and um, uh, that's one reason I refer to it. I, I think I made this up. Somebody else probably did, as most of the things I come up with, somebody else made up. I call it a radio pod. So you're going to, you've either heard this live on the radio or you're listening to a podcast now. But what's most important is the content of that pod. Um, and that is Lee Steinke. It was our guest tonight from Cis Lunar Industries. Um, as I said earlier, she's CEO COO of Cis Lunar, and um, we're having a great conversation back and forth on a lot of different things. So, Lee, um, you said you kind of just made a decision to go into space, right? And what was it? I mean, you saw the Comet mission. Was that really just, was that really the only thing that just like you saw this comment mission go, I want to get in space? Or was there something underlying it that was kind of already working on you? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a personal story. Oh, this is just you and I, nobody else here. Go ahead. Yeah. So I used to read my children books, lots of books, still do sometimes. And... The gingerbread man is sort of a silly story. It doesn't seem to have a point, <laughs> but, and it's, you know, old fashioned in its language and its cadence, but I read it anyway. I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but when my father died in 2019, I thought about it more. And for some reason that book kept coming to mind. And here's why the, the wife is inside cooking the gingerbread man and she's like, you know, puts him out on the shelf and he jumps up and runs away once he's cool, I guess. <laughs> and um, the lady starts running after him. Stop, stop. I want to eat you. And he says, you can't catch me in the gingerbread man. Run, run as fast as you can. Right. And then the husband is like, wait a minute, don't run away. I want to eat you. Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. <laughs> and then there's a cow and a dog and a chicken and whoever else. And every time it's run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. And they all just want to eat him. But Foxy Loxy, he decided that he would eat him. And so he did. And... I used that story in my father's eulogy because he was a person who decided what he would do and then did it. And I wanted to be like him. And so I decided to come to space and here I am. Very nice. Very touching. And um, condolences on your father. I recently lost mine. Um, That is... And I'm I'm not going to plug Star Wars here. We we have this discussion here about whether Star Wars is science fiction or, you know, myth. Um, it, and I I think it is more myth. But this is this is right up the alley of uh, don't try, Luke. Do yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yes. like that. I like that. That's that's I. First of all, I hadn't heard that story in so long that I was like, oh, what happens now? Oh, what? Right, right? <laughs> Foxy Loxy. I forgot about Foxy Loxy. Um, Foxy Loxy's the bomb. Yeah. So you've done it. You're out there. You're kicking it. Um, you just did it. You just crossed over. Is that the 
the lesson you would tell um, any young people or any women? You know, as as you know, you've come into the field, and uh, we got too many boys in space. <laughs> um, you know, and boys like their toys and rockets and this and any other. But I mean, what would you say to a, a young woman who's out there who's interested in this field, um, or anybody? Um, yeah. As to yeah, how to get in? I mean, your model. I loved your model. I just want to say real quick, I loved your model. <laughs> talking to people and we've said this on the show before as we bring it up of yeah, yeah getting in there and just starting to talk to people but, but go ahead tell us yeah yeah i think regardless of who it is the the way that i've found success um in a transition is by realizing that you are not in <laughs> you know you're not the expert anymore uh-huh. But you do have, you're the expert in yourself and you have to come in without apologizing for anything that you are or have to offer and anything that you don't have to offer. If you, you know, you have to find those places and niches or whatever it is that need what you have and space needs all kinds of things that are not stereotypical, not well understood. And by putting your own wares, you know, out on the table, you know, put yourself out there and see who needs you and where you can apply those skills and be creative. Um, And I would say the same thing to entrenched space people. Um, Look on that table. For things that you don't realize you need and get the people who know how to do those things and bring them in because, you know, the the fundamentals of engineering are the same, whether it's an aerospace engineer or a petroleum engineer or, a, you know, and, and the fundamentals of science are the same, the scientific method. The fundamentals of, of communications are the same. The fundamentals of finance are the same. And those underlying principles that make people capable of generalism carry across and, and provide opportunity across industries. Perfect. And, you know, I, I agree. And, you know, the one thing you're not going to find on the first human missions to, let's say, up at Mars right, are specialists. Hmm. You're not going to be on the crew. You are not going to be on the crew because if you're sending a crew of five people to Mars, you need people that can do all kinds of different things. It's, you know, later, later, it's a luxury to have specialists, right? That's because they need care and feeding. You know, there's some people, yeah, you know, you just want to lock them in a room slide a pizza under the door and have them slide the information back out, right? Yeah. Um, but that's that's a very good point you're making. And and I like the fact that what you're saying is also telling the people in the field, you know, look around out there. Because we we are we have a lot of niches, niches, niches. I can never say that word. We have a lot of those. Yeah. There's a lot of vacuum in space and we need to fill it. Let's put it that way. Um, all right. So... We we have listeners around the world too. Um, what what would you say to, you say to people in uh, people outside the U.S. 
Say it again. What was Sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just imitating your voice. Spacers. Spacers. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what, what would you say to them about getting involved too? I mean, um, you know, somebody sitting in a, a developing nation right now that's listening to this or a country yeah. that isn't playing in space. What would you say to them? Yeah, that, that one. Um, uh, there was a panel at the Global Space Science Forum for the um, for ICESCO, uh, which is the Islamic World Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Um, and there was a panel there where they talked about this and it stuck with me um, that this is sort of the same thing. You know, play to your strengths. Um, Luxembourg has made a place for themselves. UAE has made a place for themselves. Uh, but the Egyptian Space Agency is is sort of finding their niche, niche, whatever it is, um, as well. And, and by not trying to be NASA um, or Roscosmos and just choosing an area where they can really make an impact, um, I think that's kind of the best way. Um, international individuals, um, I think, have the same challenges that we have. You know, they have to make a decision about whether they want to try to be a U.S.-based asset, um, you know, so that that they can be eligible for funding uh, from the the types of funding that are only available to U.S. companies or U.S. citizens. Um, but but really, it's the same story. You know, what do you bring to the table, and what do you want to do, and how can you communicate about what you bring to the table that will allow people to listen to you? That's great. So. In our back and forth beforehand, <clears throat> I told you about some of the fun questions I ask. Yeah, I uh, like that question. Yeah, I was like, you know, hey, what's your favorite science fiction? You know, and I kind of give you a little preview of that. And you say, well, I, I'm not really a big science fiction reader. So we'll, we'll skip past that one. Um, and um, you kind of indicated, though, that you did like Star Wars as a movie, right? So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you um, Yeah, tell me your, you had, you said something about Star Wars. I'm curious about this now. Tell me about this little story about Star Wars. Well, I, I was a kid when Star Wars came out. Um and we watched the movie. It was my family, my whole family. We watched the movie. And I just desperately wanted to see it again. It was, you know, so great and wonderful and instead of leaving the theater, we just went out and we bought tickets again and we went straight back in and we watched it immediately a second time. <laughs> and it was a formative, even though Star Wars to me, you know, fiction, I don't worry about the atmosphere. I just worry about character development, story, the challenges, um, you know, so whether it's science fiction or historical fiction or whatever, I, I, um, I look for those things, but Star Wars is wonderful. And, um, it was just such a good formative experience in, in sort of the things that I'm talking about, about doing, you know, seeing an opportunity and just taking it and not worrying about whether it's weird or whether people will accept that. You know, if you see an opportunity and you feel a desire to chase something, you just just go ahead and do it. And, you know, there's no law against it. Then, then take the bull by the horns and do it. Right. Critical, uh, important point there. If there's no law against it, um, <laughs> except some laws. But anyway, on um, the current ease of space. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. So you're um, 
you've, you've entered the field, you've, you've been around in it now, floated around, gotten to know some of the folks in it, um, and kind of maybe hopefully gotten a little of osmosis of some of the vision that we have and the, the dreams that we have in the future about it. What is your vision of, of what you'd like to see happen in space in the next 50 years? Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. So I'm going to, I have maybe two different things I want to say about that. Of course. First, in my 20 years in oil and gas, I went through multiple iterations of people saying, oh, we're going to automate this. We're going to put robots on this. We're going to have machinery that handles this without humans. We're going to have the capability to think like humans and do what, what humans do. And I certainly believe that the progress on AI in the last couple of years has been uh, game changing and will only accelerate. Um, it, it's it's happening and it will happen. But but having seen so many things not happen commercially, I still have a um, a leaning that humans are going to be needed. Humans are generalist brains in ways um, that right now are still highly competitive and could, even with the expense of sending humans to space, still be more economical than than trying to get machines to do what humans can do better at this point. And so I do see human presence as a key to the success of uh, space development. That being said, I am still a pragmatist about what we can do in space. And I think um, international competition is a key driver of real need. Uh, It's the ultimate high ground. And there's a real need uh, to be there for our own national security, um, for the national security of our allies, uh, and to, to continue to be a player in the way of life that we want to have. Um, I am not dreamy about what people will do in space. Um, I'm not a romantic in that way. I have run into a lot of romantics that I care about um, in that way, but I am not that way. I think that people will bring their vices to space uh, if they go. And I, I believe that we will have the same challenges there and that, you know, perhaps there will be foundational shifts in thinking like the overview effect, but that won't change human nature and it won't change uh, comp- human competitiveness and it won't change the demand for natural resources. Um, so it's it's a challenge there. And I have lots to say about natural resources maybe on another day. <laughs> yeah, we are starting to run out of time. And um, I'll, um, I'll uh, you know, my name is Rick and I'll be your romantic tonight. Um, so um, I am... I agree with your pragmatic uh, perspective. Um, we can uh, we can do our best to be better. And one thing I've noticed is it may not seem that way, but every time we've moved into new realms, um, uh, geographically or whatever, it may not seem that way. And we can have longer conversations about that, but we are getting a little bit better and a little bit yeah. better and a little bit better every time. So... Um, Otherwise, I'd be wrapping this up and off my way to the arena to watch gladiators chop each other to bits, right? <laughs> we do watch robots do it, but anyway. So, look, I want to thank you very much, Lee. Um, it's been fun. 
you've been very patient and uh and i really appreciate you coming in um you know people don't realize this but i i do very little prep as far as coaching people what to say and everything and um and what it reveals and what it opens up is exactly what you've done and i i truly appreciate that and i know the listeners do as well so thank you very much it was- All right, folks, that's it for The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson. You've been listening to us on iRock Space Radio and the iHeartRadio Network. You've been listening to The Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.